following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, it is a pleasure to be here. This church has meant a lot to me and my family just looking at this room. I met my wife in that area up there, married her here, baptized her there, and then we dedicated our three children right along this stretch. And so it is great to be here, especially since it's four degrees wind chill in Kansas right now. So, But yes, I am the one who stole Alvin, and many of you have asked, how did I do that? Why would Alvin decide to come to Kansas? And I have a, a succinct three-syllable answer. Bar the Q. <laughs> you come out to the Midwest to Kansas to get some barbecue, it'll change your life, and you might think about relocating yourself. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into the word. Father, it is a great joy to be here today. I am so thankful for this church, uh, for the ministry, for the testimonies, for the music, and just for um, the evident growth and grace in so many of the people here. Lord, this church has been such a blessing to me and to Burbank and to the world. I, I pray that as the, the word is brought forth, Lord, that you will bless them with your word, that your spirit will help them to really digest your word, and that we will all walk away just with a great sense of awe for your church. Lord, help me to be clear where I misspeak. May the Holy Spirit make that clear. And I pray that we will all walk away with a greater view of you and your church. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, the Toledo Blade, not that you read the Toledo Blade, had a very fascinating article a year or so ago about seeker philosophy mixes with custom, mixes custom with convenience. And it writes about a young man named Steve who visited Cedar Creek Church, and I'll quote the opening. This is Steve's impression. The bright, bustling lobby was filled with the aroma of gourmet coffee, provided free of charge before, during, and after the services, and everyone was greeted by several smiling people. The 1,400-seat sanctuary has no stained-glass windows, but offers movie-style seats, complete with cup holders, and features world-class lighting and sound systems to go along with the five large video screens. A 10-person band plays high-energy, professional-quality music during the services, including contemporary worship songs, but excluding traditional hymns. Recent services included cover versions of songs by such musical groups as the Trans-Siberian Orchestra and Green Day. Pastors wear casual slacks and open-collar shirts, not suits and ties or vestments, and offer sermons that include numerous Bible quotations but omit religious jargon. I enjoyed it a lot, Steve said. It was like going to a play or a concert. I felt very comfortable. Now, there is a method to all this. The church was designed this way by the pastors to do the following, and this is to quote the, the lead pastor. We try to take out stumbling blocks. Surveys consistently show that there are four reasons why people don't go to church. 
It's boring. It's irrelevant. The music is outdated or they feel we're interested only in money. Now, this way of doing church is really quite common. You might know it as the church growth movement or the seeker-sensitive movement. And the idea is to turn the assembly, what we're doing right now, into an evangelistic outreach. Non-believers or unchurched people come in off the street. They sit in church and they are to get a taste of the gospel, to get a, a taste of the message and the fellowship. And, and the goal is to try to lure them back into the church so that they want to come. And after a period of time, they begin to become integrated into small groups, into Bible studies, and then they become Christians. And this is wildly popular. There, there are some churches that are 20,000 people in, in, in stature. And they do a really good job at preaching anecdotal messages, well-crafted. Everything is done excellently. But there's some things that will be missing in these kind of churches. You won't find expository preaching or confrontational preaching. You won't find church discipline. You won't find bold proclamations of judgment or sin. Such actions, they fear, will drive away the very people they're attempting to reach. Now, the architects of this movement, I believe for the most part, are well-intentioned brothers. They want to see the lost reached. But this type of philosophy and methodology, it begs a lot of questions, doesn't it? For instance, what is the purpose of Sunday morning? Is this to be a time where we invite the lost into our doors with the express purpose of reaching out to them? What is the purpose of preaching? Who is preaching designed to reach out to? What is the mission of the church? Now, when we look at this question, what is the mission of the church? I think the question that we need to ask before we ask that question is, what is the mission of God? Now, if you want to start a deep campfire conversation, I'm sure you love doing it, even though campfires are illegal in Burbank especially this time of year, right? It's a fire danger. You ask this question. Why would a God who is self-sufficient, doesn't need anything, enjoys perfect fellowship with each member of the Trinity, why would he go through the trouble of creating the universe? You ever wondered that? Start wondering now if you haven't before, but... But why? Why did God even create this place? What is God's purpose to do so? Now, there's a couple answers to this question. Some will contend that it's human happiness. God exists to make you happy. Have trouble getting pregnant? <laughs> Go to the big man in the sky. Nervous about the game today? Pray for your team. Do you need that promotion? You go to God. And most Christians, we know enough not to say this. But we kind of reflect this when we're disappointed, when we don't get our way, right? That is kind of the implicit reason why we believe God exists. God exists to make me happy. This, this universe is designed to please us. But is that why God made the universe? The Bible gives a different answer. We read in Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images. 
So the Lord demands that we don't glorify ourselves, that our glory and devotion is given to God alone. And God abides by this. If God were to glorify anyone besides him, he would be committing idolatry. You see, the purpose of the universe is to glorify God. But this begs another question. How can we glorify God? How can we, it's like asking, how can we make the sun shine brighter? Do you see what I'm saying? How can we give God more glory than he already has? It's like trying to make the sun shine brighter. Well, let me put it this way. The sun can shine brighter if it is surrounded by millions of mirrors. Imagine if the moon in the sky was actually a giant mirror. You would cease to have any night. The reflection of the sun would eradicate all darkness. If this world was surrounded by millions of mirrors, it would reflect the glory of the sun in every corner of the universe. And my friend, that is why God created the universe. We were made in the image of God. We are image bearers to reflect the glory of God to the universe. God created Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful, multiply. So they go to all the earth to reflect his glory and his presence. But that failed, didn't it? Those mirrors turned away from God and began to face the darkness. And so God, in his providence, established the nation of Israel to make them a kingdom of priests, to bring people back to God, to try to turn those mirrors so that his glory will be reflected in the universe. And yet, because of their pride and self-sufficiency, they have failed for the moment. And that brings us to a new work. And that new work is the church. That church, our church, is designed by God to reflect his glory to every corner of the universe. You see, the church is not a place to find community. The church is not a place to try to find a wife, although it worked for me. (laughs) It's not a place to just enjoy the potluck. It's not a place to make you happy. The purpose of the church is to make God happy to reflect his glory to all of creation. We didn't buy this church. This church doesn't belong to us. The church doesn't belong to the elders. They are stewards of the church which God has given. And his purpose is that we, as a church, as local bodies strewn throughout the universe, glorify him. And we do that in three specific ways. We do it through exalted worship. We do it through the edification of the saints. And we do it through the evangelism of the lost. And when the church glorifies God in these three ways, God is happy and pleased and delights in the church. And I know that this is a church that seeks and strives to do all those things. In my years of ministry here, as I cut my teeth in ministry, that was really pounded into me. And I'm thankful for the lessons I have learned. And I know that many of you embrace that as well. And my prayer for you is that you will be refreshed in your love and affection for the church and for this church. You see, the church is about making God happy, isn't it? And we do that in three ways, starting with exalted worship. Now, for a mirror to work, there has to be light. If you are in a perfectly dark room, no light at all, a mirror is just a shiny piece of metal that feels smooth or a piece of glass. For a mirror to reflect something, there has to be something to reflect. And in case of the church, we reflect 
the glory of God, the fullness of God. The more a mirror is filled up with the fullness of God, the more it reflects the light. And the church is called to do this through an exalted view of God, a high view of God. Now, I'm going to date myself here. But when I was in high school, one of the very popular songs was One of Us by Joan Osborne. Do you guys remember this? The singer sings in a whiny voice, what if God were one of us? Just a slob like one of us? I mean, as a non-Christian, that was like a hymn. You know, that was like my amazing grace. I mean, I loved it because you know why? It brought God down to my level. Finally, a God who wears a t-shirt and sleeps in. That's a God I can relate to. You probably would eat Doritos if you were here right now. (laughs) But that is what's called a low view of God. That is taking God from his lofty heights and bringing him down to us. And people are comforted by that. They like that. The idea of of a transcendent God who is above and beyond anything that they can comprehend is terrifying. And frankly, it should be. You see, a high view of God seeks to elevate our view to where he is, not try to bring him down. We seek to face the fullness of God, to see the fullness of God, to live in light of the fullness of God. And we are to face God and give him glory. That is what worship is, essentially, is to spread his glory to all the earth. This is why you're saved, as Ephesians 1, 11 through 12 state. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that he who were, that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. You are saved to give praise to his glory. And we do this through worship. Now, worship is specifically laid out for us in the Bible. One of the, the finest passages on worship that we see is in Romans 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable and perfect. You see, worship is more than than strumming a few chords to a Chris Tomlin song. It is a life of devotion and service where you live your life in obedience to God and his commands because he is worth it. It is an act of sincere devotion. And God wants us to come together because he is worth it. Part of worship is assembling together with the saints. Acts 2.42, the first Christians were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In Hebrews 10.24-26, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We were to worship God together because worshiping God together brings us together. Did you know that? Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions. Notice all the plurals there, right? 
race, priesthood, nation, people, so that you may proclaim the excellences of excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, together we come together to grow closer to God and closer to each other. And frankly, this is needed, isn't it? Because church is often a place of tension. Now, I am sure there's no tension here. None at all. I went to Kansas and, oh, no, actually our church is a very sweet church. But there is tension because you have sinful people. Member of the choir, do you ever get upset that so-and-so gets that solo again? You who work in the kitchen, when they thank somebody else and not you, you're like, hello, who do you think? Wash the dishes. Teachers, do you get a little bit upset when people critique your sermon again or critique your Sunday school lesson again and you just want to say, well, would you like to try it for a turn? You see, church is often a place of tension. And it becomes a tension because we become more focused on ourselves than the greater picture. See, one thing about worship is it draws us out. It, it causes us to come together and realize that we're on the same team. And it is essential to the stability of our church. I mean, one thing that is coming up, which I love, is the Olympics. Right? Do you guys watch the Olympics here? And I love the Summer Olympics specifically because the Olympics comes at a very crucial time in our country because it's a very divided country during the leap year, isn't it? Because the Summer Olympiad is often during the election year. And it's a, a time when our country becomes divided. But we become united for about two weeks as we, we come together and we cheer on the Americans who really take it to the French. <laughs> right? Now, do we have any French here? Okay. Be honest now. The French want to take it to the Americans, right? So it's kind of a fair trade, right? We all come together. We're united. Because we love this country. You see, when we come together in corporate worship and we are singing to God, we are delighting in God working through uh, people, through, through their testimonies, and we hear the preaching, we're all on the same t- side. We're, we're all in this together. That is what exalted worship does. As we grow closer to God, we grow closer to each other. Worship is something that makes our church different and distinct from any other worldly organization. We stay together and the glue is God and the glory of God. The purpose of the church is to exalt our God in worship. Secondly, the purpose is the edification of the saints. Now, we are mirrors that reflect the glory of God. Anyone who has turned to Christ now reflects the glory of God. But if we are honest, we are like funhouse mirrors. Some of you are a little bit wider in your mirror. Some of you are a little bit more narrow or contorted or twisted. I mean, we all look different, right? Because the mirror is not perfectly flat. And what God is doing so that we more perfectly reflect his glory is he's kind of grinding us down to make us more of a proper reflection of his glory. And that work is done through edification. We read in Ephesians 1.4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is something that God wants. He wants you to be holy and blameless so that you can accurately reflect his glory. Now, in Colossians 1.28, Paul explains that this is his mission, and he gives us some insight about how he does this. He says, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. 
Notice the goal. The goal is to, com- to present every man complete or mature in Christ. And notice the means of doing so. He does so by admonishing and by teaching. Now, you know what it means to admonish? It means to warn. We read in, for instance, 1 Corinthians 4.14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as beloved children. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly. To admonish is to warn. It's to point out if they have some errant doctrine or if they're living some way that's contrary to sound doctrine. Admonishing is what Christians are called to do. And unless you're a jerk, you don't like to do it. Seriously. I mean, who likes making people uncomfortable when you warn them? Pastor Dave, um, I know you meant well by preaching that sermon, but where was that in the Bible? Uh, Dave, I, I, I hate to say this, but you seem really harsh with your kids. Dave, I, I haven't seen you for a while at church. Is, is everything okay? Right, those are difficult conversations to have. But they are necessary. And sadly, many of us, we excuse it. I'm guilty of this, where we just kind of let it go and say, well, well, I'm sure they'll figure it out. It's none of my business. Don't worry about it. Or we might take the high road and say, who am I to judge? And as a result, people go on in their sin uncorrected, and we, we neglect our stewardship over their sanctification. But we are to admonish people, and this is a call for everyone. And admonishing does make people uncomfortable. I mean, if you saw your two-year-old climbing over the railing on the Golden Gate Bridge, you would say something that would make that two-year-old very uncomfortable. And you would warn them that if they do not obey you right now, they're going to be extremely uncomfortable. But you do that so they won't experience the ultimate discomfort, right? We're all pilgrims. We're all walking this road together. And warning is a way that we really help people become more polished mirrors. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever had the experience of changing batteries in a fire alarm. But it is highly unpleasant. You stand on your ladder and you change the battery. And then this is the hardest part. You, you have to test it. And so you're on the ladder and you just, eh, okay, it works, right? And you try not to fall off your ladder. Now, let's say somebody came to you and said, I can actually fix that for you. Instead of the irritating buzz, it will play Kenny G, <laughs> Lionel Richie, or Celine Dion. Next time you have a fire and you're burning to death, at least you'll be listening to My Heart Will Go On, right? (laughs) You see, the purpose of a warning is to create some discomfort, to, to shake you out of your stupor so that you return to the righteous road. But we're not all about admonishing. There's also an element of teaching. Paul talks about in Ephesians 4.11 And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Paul says that elders are to, in Titus 1.9, hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that they may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And in 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul urges his protege with 
that things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So a preacher must teach and admonish. They often work together. I mean, we do this with our kids, don't we? Do you still want to live at home when you're 40? Then do your homework. Do you want your bones to break like toothpicks? Drink your milk. Do you want so-and-so to recognize you at the pool? Then scale back on the makeup. We do that. We... Let that be a lesson to all you young ladies, right? You see, we, we admonish, we warn them to get their attention, then we fill in the void with teaching. And that's really the purpose of Sunday morning. Who else is going to do it? If you don't get taught and admonished here, where else will you be admonished? You see, so many people are starving for this kind of preaching. And I thank God for Calvary Bible Church that's really built on expository preaching and bringing the word. On Sunday school, you get great, excellent teaching in the children's program. This is a time for edification. This is a time to equip you, to build you up for the work of the ministry. And this is a place where Colossians 3, 16 really comes to life, which says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is a refuge for us. This is a place where we hear the word by not only Tim and some of the others, but by everyone as they talk about it. And that's one thing I love about the culture of Calvary Bible Church is the word is continually discussed and sorted out. And the goal is to make you a polished mirror. But there is another mission of this church. We're not just content just polishing our mirrors. We want to give God glory. And one of the ways we give God glory is by going out and finding these these reversed mirrors and turning them around so that they face the sun. And that purpose is evangelism of the lost. In the climax of the book of Matthew, and you guys knew I was going to get here, right? We read in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He sends out the disciples before he goes up to heaven. In Acts 1, 7 through 8, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And what's going to be the result? Revelation 5, 9. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And how does this happen? Well, through evangelism. Romans 10:14, people can't be saved without hearing the gospel. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? Well, you can't. How shall they believe in whom they have not heard? Well, you can't believe unless you hear, right? And how shall they hear without a preacher? The word of God has to be spoken. The purpose of the church is to turn mirrors around so that they face the son of righteousness. And this gives glory to God in a number of ways. I'll just give you four of them. Number one, 
Proclaiming the gospel at great personal risk to yourself and your reputation gives God glory. Because what you are saying is, I am willing to suffer to obey the command that God has given me to tell you about the gospel. Secondly, love is complete when it's shared. Talk to an engaged man or woman and they will tell you about their perfect fiance. They want everyone to know. Talk to a new father or a new grandparent. And you will see... 30 pictures on their iPhone of their new baby who at one day old is the smartest one on the planet. (laughs) Evangelism, thirdly, is a way of recruiting more worshipers, isn't it? We want more reflection of the golden beams of God on this world. And, And every time we turn somebody to face the living God, we see his glory spread. I mean, wasn't it great just hearing those testimonies today? Another worshiper. Another one reflecting the glory of God to this lost world. And fourthly, the fact that there's somebody from every tribe, tongue, and nation says something about our God, doesn't it? It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or an Arab or a German or a Slav or a Hutu or a Tutsi. It doesn't matter your background. We all worship the same God. He's not the white God. He's not the American God. I remember my wife and I were at a bed and breakfast and there was an older Asian couple from China and they served us the standard bed and breakfast fare, eggs, bacon, which I refer to as meat candy, (laughs) and eggs. And this Chinese older gentleman was poking at the bacon, kind of in disgust. And he said, my wife translated, what is it? Right? It was like, this is disgusting. This is awful. Now, I was about to take his bacon, but my wife stopped me. (laughs) But inside, I was a little bit indignant. I was like, you're calling bacon disgusting when your delicacy in your country is fried scorpions? I mean, come on. But you see, even bacon's regional. But our God is not a regional God. He is worshipped by every tribe, tongue, and nation. And incidentally, this is why missions gives glory to God. We basically tell the world that you don't have to become an Arab to become a Christian, right? Like Muslims. You just turn to the living God. doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what your religious background is. As long as you have faith and believe, God receives glory. And one thing I praise God for is just the emphasis on missions in this church. That you're not content to see people here turn to the living God. You want to see people from all over the planet turn to God. This is a fulfillment of Romans 10, 18, which echoes Psalm 19, 4, which says, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The greatest impact that we can have is turning lost people to Jesus Christ. And you would think that this would not be controversial, but it is. I'll quote from Kevin DeYoung in his excellent book, Why We Love the Church. He says this, I've read books that suggest that the church ought to participate in food distribution, help people find employment, offer parenting classes, help inner city residents with issues of poverty, drug abuse, and education, adopt a city in the developing world, start an adoption program, and place children and families. The church also should partner with the YMCA, begin classes for literacy and math, help people with car repairs and financial help, sponsor family movies, and organized soccer and baseball leagues. There there is this idea that the church exists to make this world a better place. 
people might ask this question. If Calvary Bible Church was eradicated from Burbank, would Burbank miss it? But is that the purpose of Calvary Bible Church? Is our purpose to wipe out world poverty? Is our purpose to help people graduate from high school? Now, I will say this. Those are good things. Those are good things. Those are great things. But nowhere in the New Testament, or for that matter, the Old Testament, do you find that the church's mission is to eradicate worldwide poverty. In fact, Jesus is very frank when he says in Matthew 26, 11, for the poor you will always have. There's always going to be the poor people because we just live in a fallen world. There'll always be the poor. Now, does this mean that we don't care about the poor? That the church doesn't want to help the poor? Well, there is a sense where we do help the poor, especially those people within the church. That is very much a mandate in the church. You look at all those commands. is to help those people who have been abandoned by their families because of the faith. It's to help those widows whose, whose kids disown them because they converted to Christianity to support them. There is a sense where we take care of each other because if the church doesn't take care of their own, then who will? But to say that our job is to relieve worldwide poverty... And that's the mission of the church is actually dangerous because it takes us away from our primary objectives. Now, does that mean helping the poor is something that we don't do? Well, on contrary, I say we do. Let me explain. You see, there is a difference between what Christians are called to and what the church is called to. Just like there is a difference between what an engineer is called to do and what a professor of engineering is called to. A professor of engineering is to teach engineers. It's not to build buildings, but to teach those people to build buildings so that when the earthquake comes, it will stand true. In the same way, the church's mission is to build up Christians, to develop such godly, compassionate, and loving character that they want to just relieve suffering, especially eternal suffering. See, when we look at this world and the problems with it, the, the solution is not to forsake the gospel, it's to cling to the gospel. Let me explain. When you look at the two great causes of poverty, you have one, oppression. Now, you do have the curse. Some people are poor because of the curse, disease or something like that takes them out. But you also have oppression. Many people are poor because tyrants or other people suck the life out of them. And what's the solution? How do you stop that from happening? Well, James, in his book, book of James, says in uh, James 5.4, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. Notice the admonition given to the wealthy landowners. You know, when we share the gospel with people, one of the fruits of that transformation is they become generous and giving and fair and just and repent of their oppression. Another way the gospel relieves poverty is it deals with another cause of poverty, and that is foolishness. We read in Proverbs 24, 33 to 34, a little sleep, a little slumber, 
a little folding of the hands to rest, then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. I mean, I think all of us know people who are poor because of their foolish decisions. They do what is right in their own eyes. But when they fear God and turn to God and the fruit of the Spirit comes upon them and it is developed in them, you see that their cause of poverty is relieved. So that's one way is through evangelism. Secondly, we relieve poverty by building up Christians, by teaching the Bible, by teaching you to manifest the character of our God. And what is the character of our God? When we look at a Christian, what's this work and this fruit that's developed in them? It's love. And it's well known that Christians are the most generous people on this world. In fact, religious people, according to surveys, give four times more money to those charities including donating blood and the like, than people who are not religious. This idea that the church doesn't care about the poor, they just care about evangelism, is really a myth. See, this is the deal. If we don't share our faith, if we don't build up the saints, then who's going to do it? Ultimately, we wait for the Lord to restore all things to the fullness of time. But in the meantime, if we care about those lost people, if we care about this broken world, then what we will aim to do, what the direction of our church will be focused on is the glory of God. The goal of this church is not to make lost people happy. The goal of this church is not to make saved people happy. The goal of this church is to make God happy. You know what, friend? When you make God happy, something amazing happens to you. You experience joy. Let me explain. This is kind of counterintuitive. It's kind of like a little driving direction if you're in the, the snow on the rare <clears throat> chance in your lifetime that you actually experience that. You turn into the skid. You don't turn away from it. In the same way, as count, joy is counterintuitive. Let me explain. Luke nine twenty three through 24. And he was saying to them all, this is Jesus speaking, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Now, the good life as taught by our culture is manifested in a beer commercial, isn't it? It's box seats at the Dodger game. It is sipping a Corona in the Caribbean, waiting for the raft to take you out to your yacht. That is the good life. It is one of indulgence and being pampered, going to the nail salon, you name it. That's what joy comes from. It comes from delighting in yourself, affirming yourself, and certainly not by denying yourself. But according to this passage, true joy is found in denying yourself. Let me give you a little illustration. Let's say for a Christmas raffle, you were able to bid on the prize of going to the Grand Canyon with Pastor Dave Hintz. This is actually a big deal in Kansas, okay? So, and if you're a lady, my wife will join me. So, you know, it's, it's all good. 
So you win this raffle, and we, we go out on the 40. We turn north in Williams, Arizona, and we head to the Grand Canyon. You are just building in excitement because you, you heard so much about it. You've seen the pictures. you studied the geology. You want to see it for yourself. And so we park the car. We weave through all the German tourists, and then we stand... <laughs> They don't have Grand Canyons in Germany, just so you know. Okay? And we stand at the cliff, and you are, you are just, whoa. You see the cathedral of color and rock and watch the serpentine Colorado River, river just, just weave through the canyon. And then you hear me say, it's beautiful. I've never seen anything like this in all of my life. I could stare at this forever and you turn to look at me to nod in agreement and you notice that I am looking at a mirror. (laughs) Now you are thinking two things at this point in time. Dave, you are vain and you're insane. I mean, isn't that ludicrous? I mean, who goes to the Grand Canyon to look on their smartphone? Who goes to the Grand Canyon to look in the mirror? The point of the Grand Canyon is to lose yourself in the transcendent beauty of the canyon itself. See, my friend, the most miserable people in the world, I think we can all testify to this. I know I am most miserable when I am self-absorbed. When I am focused on myself, me, 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 please me, and nobody can please me. I'm miserable. My friend, God calls you to die to yourself to find that true joy. He wants you to turn from your own way of facing the darkness to facing the light. We read in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And my friend, if you have never experienced the joy of the gospel, if you've never truly understood that you have sinned against a holy God and his wrath abides on you, if you never understood that Jesus accepted that wrath on your behalf on the cross and he was raised from the dead so that you can follow him in faith, if you have never actually turned from your sin and turned from the darkness and faced the light of Jesus Christ, you're missing out on joy in this life and for all eternity. When we deny ourselves, when we follow him, when we face the reflection of the sun, when you, you are cleansed and you are changed and you are born again and that light which has frightened so many people throughout re- spiritual history won't frighten you but you will be drawn to its beauty because you are washed clean and born again. That is the greatest privilege in all the life, all of life. And see, Christian, the, the purpose that God has for himself is a purpose that he has given to you, is a purpose that's given to the church. You see, when you assess a church, you... It's not about whether or not you like it. It's not about whether or not you like the music. It's not about whether or not your children are making friends in the nursery. It's not about whether or not you like the teaching. It's not about whether or not the the pastor is at your beck and call. It's not about whether or not the seats are comfortable. It's not about whether or not you feel this church is going places. It's not whether or not you like the missionaries that this church supports. It's not about whether or not you like the staff or get along with other people. The point of the church is not to make you happy. The point of the church is to make God happy. And when you make God happy, when this church makes God happy, you will experience 
the joy of being a part of something that's greater or more transcendent than yourself. You are part of an organization which is designed to reflect the rays of God's glory onto the universe that he made. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you just grateful for this church. And Lord, I thank you for the men who lead this church, for the servants who serve this church, and just for their faithful presence to reflect your glory to all of creation. Father, I pray that you will uh, just encourage this church to press on in the mission and the commission that you have given them, that they will not grow weary in the fight. And Lord, that you'll just give them a sense of transcendent purpose that we are part of the greatest organization on this earth. And Lord, we reflect your glory, but we are looking forward to your glory being present and manifest in all the earth. Come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.